Welcome back to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. This week, we're going to curl up with a good book. But don't get too comfy. It's all on horror stories. A huge spoiler alert for anyone who loves horror films and books. To avoid any plots being ruined, I suggest you go to another episode wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs> Whilst novels are supposed to bring us wisdom and wonder, there is a dark side to the world of literature with books that strike fear into our hearts and souls. Some of the books we're focusing on today have been made into television series and films. Now, we heard in a previous episode titled Haunted Hotels all about Stephen King's experiences in the Stanley Hotel in Colorado and how his trip here inspired the book The Shining. And as you may remember from that episode, I told you all about my experiences staying in the same hotel, which I will never forget. Even thinking about it gives me goosebumps. So could the spirits residing in the Stanley Hotel have inspired this book, or even uh, put the thought into Stephen King's mind. As much as horror is a genre, it's also a technique, a way to confront or explore something real by taking the audience to extremes. Now, as you know, I'm awful with horror films, so I don't really watch them and I don't tend to read horror stories either, but I do love to write them. The best horror has something more on its mind than just scares and indeed finds a way to use the scares to explore whatever that something is. Now, The Shining centres on the life of Jack Torrance, a struggling writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as the one-off season caretaker of the historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. The Shining is filled with dark and terrifying images, but the book itself isn't filled with jump scares or ghastly scenes of violence. Although there is darkness, readers aren't likely to be haunted by King's story. One of the scariest moments in the film is Jack's encounter with the woman in room 217. But in the book, this plays out very differently compared to the movie. And in the book's case, it's Jack's son, Danny, that has the encounter. So get ready. I'm going to start reading. Danny pushed the door open. It swung smoothly without a creak. He was standing just outside a large combination bed-sitting room, and although the snow had not reached up this far, the highest drifts were still a foot below the second-floor windows. The room was dark because Daddy had closed all the shutters on the western exposure two weeks ago. He stood in the doorway, fumbled to his right and found the switchplate. Two bulbs in an overhead cut-glass fixture came on. Danny stepped further in and looked around. The rug was deep and soft, a quiet rose colour, soothing. A double bed with a white coverlet, a writing desk. Pray tell me, why is a raven like a writing desk? By the large, shuttered window. During the season, a constant writer would have pretty view of the mountains to describe to the folks back home. He stepped further in. Nothing here, nothing at all. Only an empty room. Cold because Daddy was heating the east wing today. A bureau? A closet, its door open to reveal a clutch of hotel hangers, the kind you can't steal. 
a Gideon Bible on an end table. To his left was the bathroom door, a full-length mirror on it reflecting his own white-faced image. That door was ajar, and... He watched his double nod slowly. Yes. That's where it was. Whatever it was. In there. In the bathroom. His double walked forward, as if to escape the glass. It put its hands out, pressed it against its own. Then it fell away, at an angle, as the bathroom door swung open. He looked in. A long room, old-fashioned, like a Pullman car, tiny white hexagonal tiles on the floor. At the far end, a toilet with the lid up. At the right, a wash basin, and another mirror above it, the kind that hides a medicine cabinet. To the left, a huge white tub on claw feet, the shower curtain pulled closed. Danny stepped into the bathroom and walked towards the tub dreamily, as if propelled from outside himself, as if this whole thing were one of the dreams Tony had brought him, that he would perhaps see something nice when he pulled the shower curtain back, something Daddy had forgotten or Mummy had lost, something that would make them both happy. So he pulled the shower curtain back. The woman in the tub had been dead for a long time. She was bloated and purple, her gas-filled belly rising out of the cold, ice-rimmed water like some fleshy island. Her eyes were fixed on Danny's, glassy and huge like marbles. She was grinning, her purple lips pulled back in a grimace. Her breasts lolled, her pubic hair floated, her hands were frozen on the knurled porcelain sides of the tub like crab claws. Danny shrieked, but the sound never escaped his lips, turning inward and inward. It fell down in his darkness like a stone in a well. He took a single, blundering step backward, hearing his heels clack on the white hexagonal tiles, and at that same moment his urine broke, spilling effortlessly out of him. The woman was sitting up, still grinning, her huge marble eyes fixed on him. She was sitting up. Her dead palms made squintering noises on the porcelain, her breasts swayed like ancient cracked punching bags. There was the minute sound of breaking ice shards. She was not breathing. She was a corpse and dead long years. Danny turned and ran, bolting through the bathroom door, his eyes starting from their sockets, his hair on end like the hair of a hedgehog about to be turned into a sacrificial ball, his mouth open and soundless. He ran full tilt into the outside door of 217, which was now closed. He began hammering on it, far beyond realising that it was unlocked and he had only to turn the knob to let himself out. His mouth peeled forth, deafening screams that were beyond human auditory range. He could only hammer on the door and hear the dead woman coming for him. Bloated belly, dry hair, outstretched hands, something that had lain slain in that tub for perhaps years, embalmed there in magic. The door would not open. Would not, would not, would not. And then the voice of Dick Halloran came to him, so sudden and unexpected, so calm, that his locked vocal cords opened and he began to cry weakly, not with fear but with blessed relief. Time passed and he was just beginning to relax, just beginning to realise that the door must be unlocked and he could go when the years, damp, bloat, fish-smelling hands closed softly around his throat and he was turned implicably around to stare into that dead and purple face. 
Now, you might remember in the movie, Jack infamously embraces the attractive ghost of the woman before she transforms into a rotting, cackling corpse and chases him off. But in the book, um, Jack finds nothing in the bathroom. He leaves and then returns to investigate when he hears the shower curtain being drawn. He's paralysed with fear, but finds his feet and runs out of the room into the hall. Then, in the hall, Stephen King switches to a first-person point of view. He turned off the light with a fumbling gesture, stepped out into the hall and pulled the door shut without looking back. From inside, he seemed to hear an odd, wet, thumping sound, far off dim, as if something had just scrambled belatedly out of the tub, as if to greet a caller, as if it had realised the caller was leaving before the social amenities had been completed, and so it was now rushing to the door, all purple and grinning, to invite the caller back inside perhaps forever. Now, interesting, because this was in room 217. I believe that Mr. King stayed in the very room that I stayed in. He couldn't sleep and stood staring out of the window into the dark night, smoking a cigarette. It was at this moment that he thought of writing a book about the hotel and a haunted room. It's funny because when I read the section before his description of room 217, as Danny first enters it, it, it's brilliant because that's how I remember it. And that room 217 is definitely haunted and by something awful. Now, you might have heard rumours that the film set of the 1973 film The Exorcist was cursed but does this curse go as far back as the book when it was written in 1971 by William Peter Blatty? Well, those who enjoyed the movie should take the time to read the book as its depth surpasses the film with character development and storyline. Now, as you might know, and we have mentioned before, this story was based on an actual exorcism. And now I'm about to read an excerpt from the book where Father Carras is about to uh, try and talk round the spirit that has possessed the young girl, Regan McNeil. As they climbed the front step, Karras glanced at his watch. It was ten before six. He looked down the street at the Jesuit residence hall as he realised he would now miss dinner. Father Karras? The priest turned to look at Chris, about to turn her key in the front door lock. She had hesitated and turned to him. Do you think you should be wearing your priest's clothes? she said. Karras eyed her with a pity that he tried to conceal, her face and her voice. How helplessly childlike they were. Too dangerous, he told her. Okay. Chris turned back and started opening the door, and it was then that Karras felt it. A chill, tugging, warning. It scraped through his bloodstream like particles of ice. Father Karras? He looked up. Chris had entered. For a hesitant moment, the priest stood unmoving. Then slowly and deliberately, as if he had made a decision to do so, he went forward, stepping into the house with an odd sense of ending. Karras heard commotion upstairs. A deep, booming voice was thundering obscenities, threatening in anger and in hate and frustration. Taken aback, he turned to Chris with a look of wonderment. She was staring at him mutely. Then she moved on ahead. 
He followed her upstairs and along a hall to where Carl was standing, with his head bent low over folded arms just opposite the door to Regan's bedroom. At this close range, the voice from the bedroom was so loud that it almost seemed amplified electronically. As Carl looked up at their approach, the priest saw bafflement and fright in his eyes, as in an awed and cracked voice he said to Chris, It it wants no straps. Chris turned to Karis. I'll be back in a second, she told him, the words coming dully from a worn-out soul. Karis watched her as she turned and walked away down the hall and then into her bedroom. She left the door open behind her. Karis turned his glance to Carl. The houseman was staring at him intently. You are a priest? he asked. Karis nodded, then looked quickly back to Regan's bedroom door. The raging voice had been abruptly displaced by the long, strident lowing of some animal that might have been a steer. Something prodding at Karis's hand. He looked down. That's her, Chris was saying. That's Regan. She was handing him a photograph and he took it. Young girl, very pretty, sweet smile. That was taken four months ago, Chris said dreamily. She took back the photo and motioned with her hand at the bedroom door. Now you go in and take a look at her now. Chris leaned back against the wall beside Carl and with her eyes cast down, her arms folded across her chest. She said hopelessly and quietly, I'll wait here. Who's in there with her? Karis asked. Chris looked up at him, expressionless. No one. The priest held her haunted gaze and then turned with a frown to the bedroom door and as he grasped the doorknob, the sounds from within abruptly ceased. In the ticking silence, Karis hesitated and slowly entered the room. Almost flinching backward at the pungent stench of mouldering excrement that hit his face and his nostrils like a palpable blast. Reining in his revulsion, he closed the door and then his eyes locked, stunned on the thing that was Regan on the creature that was lying on its back on the bed, head propped against a pillow, whilst eyes bulging wide in their hollow sockets shone with mad, cunning and burning intelligence, with interest and with spite, as they fixed upon his, as they watched him intently, seething in a face shaped into a skeletal mask of unthinkable malevolence. Karis shifted his gaze to the tangled and thickly matted hair, to the wasted arms and legs and distended stomach jutting up so grotesquely, then back to the eyes that were watching him, pinning him, shifting now to follow as he moved to a desk and chair near the large bay window. Karis fought to sound calm, even warm and friendly. Hello, Reagan, he said. He picked up the chair and took it over by the bed. I'm a friend of your mother's, he said, and she tells me that you're very, very sick. Kara sat down. Do you think you'd like to tell me what's wrong? He asked. I'd like to help you. Regan's eyes gleamed fiercely, unblinkingly, as a yellowish saliva dribbled down from a corner of her mouth to her chin, to her lips stretched caught into a feral grin of bow-mouth mockery. Well, 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 
he gloated sardonically, and hairs prickled up on the back of Karis's neck at a voice that was deep and thick with menace and power. So it's you! They sent you! She continued, as if pleased. Well, we've nothing to fear from you at all! Yes, that's right, Karis answered. I'm your friend, and I'd like to help you. You might loosen these straps then, Regan croaked. She had tugged up her wrist to show that now Karis noticed they were bound with a double set of leather restraining straps. Are the straps uncomfortable for you? Extremely. They're a nuisance, an infernal nuisance. The eyes glinted slyly with secret amusement. Karis saw the scratch marks on Regan's face, the cuts on her lips where apparently she'd bitten them. I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Regan, he told her. I'm not Regan, she rumbled, still with that taut and hideous grin that Karis now guessed was her permanent expression. How incongruous the braces on her teeth looked, he thought. Oh, I see, he said, nodding. Well then, maybe we should introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karis. Who are you? I'm the devil. Oh, good, Karis nodded approvingly. Now we can talk. A little chat. If you wish. Oof, need a bit of a breather there. Do you know, when I ordered the book, I actually shook as I was actually typing out my order on my laptop. I didn't want it and I don't want it in my house. How bizarre is that? I think because I know it was a real case um, and it was a little boy, not a girl, it really gets to me. And seeing, you know, and hearing all the dark things in that book, it's all sort of springing out of the page to me. Uh, It makes it even more real. And I actually don't know what to do with the book. (laughs) We could actually give it as a prize, if you like, with my pencil marks here. If anybody would like this book, The Exorcist, that I read from on this podcast, then please email in and uh, Molly will pick somebody at random and send it off to you. Enjoy. I don't want it here. Now, paranormal activity can influence and inspire many writers. Look at The Exorcist and The Omen. Now, as you might know, I've written a few books, and my new one, uh, The Ripper of Whitechapel, the second in the series of The Ghost Hunter Chronicles, is released on the 29th of September. Now, again, I've used some of my own paranormal experiences to include in this new spooky adventure. So this is an extract from my new book, The Ripper of Whitechapel II in the Ghost Hunter Chronicles. Chapter 2. Mr. Wilson has a terrible fright. Mr. Wilson, the deputy head teacher of Whitechapel Primary School, was going through some last-minute paperwork before he left the building for his summer holidays. He would be glad to get away. The new building works had been a nightmare. The parents' committee had paid for a new wing to be built on the end of the old school. The workmen had only been digging and building for about a week, but it seemed like an age. The drilling and banging had driven all the teachers mad with frustration, and the children's concentration had been somewhat compromised. By the time they all came back from their summer break, hopefully the new wing would be finished and all could go back to normal again. He was really looking forward to this holiday. He and his family were going away for a much-needed trip to Spain. He closed his eyes briefly shut out the sights and smells of his musty old office and imagined himself lying in the sun. He gave a deep sigh, relishing the action of locking his desk for the last time this term. 
But as he stood and reached for his bag, he heard a child giggling in the distance. How odd. All the children had left for their summer break yesterday. There should be no one here but himself. Swinging his bag over his shoulder, Mr Wilson peeked out into the corridor and listened. Nothing. Thinking he must have imagined it, he locked up his office and strode purposely towards the exit. Suddenly he stopped in his tracks. At the end of the corridor, he could see two children running. Hey! he shouted. There was no response. Mr Wilson was now convinced that there were children messing about inside the school. When he caught whoever it was, there was going to be trouble, that was for sure. He walked quickly in the direction of the children. When he reached the end of the corridor and turned the corner, he was expecting to see them. He saw nothing. But he could hear the voices of two children. One was giggling, the other was singing. Ring a ring a roses, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Mr Wilson followed the sweet singing voice and entered a classroom. Right, what are you two doing here? You shouldn't be... Mr Wilson's booming voice faded into nothing. His mouth began to open and close like a stranded goldfish. He didn't recognise them. They certainly didn't go to this school. They were dressed bizarrely and one of them was rocking backwards and forwards in the corner of the room. Mr Wilson was unnerved. Suddenly fear gripped him, twisting his stomach into a tight knot. Something was very wrong with these two kids. Standing in the centre of the room was a girl, about eight years old. She was wearing a white nightgown and her long black hair fell about her face like a pair of wet curtains. Her skin was white as snow, but her eyes were black and deep. She looked as if she'd been swimming because all around her bare feet rippled a puddle of murky dark water. In her small white hand, she held a bedraggled-looking doll. It was also sodden. The other child in the corner was younger, about three or four years old, a boy, but also dressed in a long white nightgown. He too looked to be soaked to the skin. Mr Wilson stumbled backwards in shock. He didn't know what to make of the scene unfolding before his eyes. He was an intelligent, logical man who didn't believe in paranormal nonsense. But somehow, he felt unnerved by the sight of these two children. Who, who are you? He stammered, not quite sure he wanted to hear the answer. The children didn't reply, but the girl snapped her head up unnaturally and stared straight at him. Now, this week our story comes from Amy, who shares her story from when she used a Ouija board for the very last time. Hello Yvette, my name's Amy and I wanted to share a story with you about a time where I decided to do a Ouija board. Um... My friend and I were, I think, about 17 at the time. And I had done Ouija boards before, but they were normally in like a group of people and it all got a bit silly and nobody was concentrating and nothing really happened. However, this particular day or evening, um, my friend suggested it and we wrote out on pieces of paper the alphabet and the words yes, no and goodbye and all of that. Um, and blue tacked every single thing to the back of a Monopoly board. Um, it was makeshift, but I thought, well, that'll work, and used a, sh a shot glass so that whatever was going to speak to us could move the shot glass. 
And we'd set it all up and it was on the floor of my living room. My father, it was the evening, it was probably about five o'clock. So it was winter, it was dark. My father was at work. He wasn't due back till seven. So for a week, mess about with the Ouija board. He won't be here to tell us off. Um, it was all set up. It was on the floor. However, I decided to add a bit of humour to the mix. And at the time, my dad had a little desk in the corner. And on that desk was a lamp from Ikea. Now, Ikea lamps use Ikea light bulbs and I was living in Beckenham and the closest Ikea to me would have been Croydon which was a bit of a pain to get to and I didn't drive so I just humorously said there's anything in here please do not mess with my dad's lamp because it's going to take me ages to get to Ikea to buy a replacement light bulb I think you can see where this is going I can't even remember if anything was spelled out on the Ouija board, to be honest, because almost as soon as we'd started, this light that was turned off at the time came on and started flickering vigorously. And as you can imagine, this freaked myself out and my friend out and we just jumped up from the floor and we ran out of that living room um, and out of the house. <laughs> Grabbed my keys, ran out of the house and we were stood outside for quite a while, like just just in disbelief that that had happened. And, you know, he was like, was the lamp definitely off? I was like, yes. Um, it's plugged in, but it's turned off. And eventually I said to him, we can't leave the Ouija board in the middle of the living room floor. My dad's going to come home. We need to go back in. And obviously I live there. I can't not go back to where I live. So he decided the best thing to do would be to go back in and recite the Lord's Prayer, even though we're atheists. Why not? We've got to do something, he said, because there's something not right and we've let something in that needs to be pushed away. So it, it took a while for us to pluck up the courage to go back in again. And the lamp was off when we went back in. And then we started reciting the Lord's Prayer and the lamp started flickering on and off vigorously again. But we stayed there and we, I think, said the Lord's prayer twice um and eventually it, the lamp went off and I decided I don't know whether this was the right thing to do but we smashed the shot glass that we'd been using as a planchette and then we burnt all of the letters that we'd created and blue tacked on the back of this monopoly board however I always felt as though something oppressive was following me for like the longest time um so I felt like I had to try and ignore whatever the heck it was as much as I could but I was making crosses out of pencils and putting them around my room where my father couldn't see because I didn't want him to think that I was doing anything weird so I did that for the longest time um but also one of the weird things that happened as a result is that at the time I had a cat and where we'd done this Ouija board was in the middle of the living room floor and it was the direct route between one side of the living room to the kitchen so my cat would normally just walk through the living room to the kitchen out of the cat flap. After we did the Ouija board, he never walked directly through that space again. He would almost walk to the very edge of the room and, uh, and deliberately avoid this space and go around it very carefully before going into the kitchen. His behaviour changed as a result of us doing this Ouija board in that particular space. So I don't know what it was we did, but we did something and it changed the atmosphere of the house. It changed the way that my cat behaved in the house and it changed the way I felt as a person for years afterwards.
So as a result, I've never done the Ouija board since. I will never do it again. And I think for anybody who is going to do it themselves, and it is obviously an individual choice, if you're going to, then please research it before you do. Because I do feel like you need to have some sort of protection before you double in anything like that. So yeah, that was my story, which I've never told anybody. The only person that knows about it is the guy that was with me at the time. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for sending in your voice note. Something I believe was already there with you. The Ouija board you say you didn't even use, but it was there placed in the middle of the room. I believe that there was a spirit in that house with you and was listening and watching your movements as you began your fun early in the evening with the board. Maybe they wanted to scare you a little to stop you from using it. Just one idea. Now, the Lord's Prayer, I am not a religious person, but it's always a good thing to say before you start using the Ouija board and also say it at the end. If you don't like the Lord's Prayer and you're not at all religious in that way, then find something else, something soothing, something that can give you comfort and bring something to a close, uh, a blessing of some kind. Now, I do the Lord's Prayer. I do it silently and privately, uh, more out of respect for the spirits that have chosen to come and talk to me. So, I want to hear more Ouija board stories. Have you used one like Amy or nearly used one? And if so, what happened? Were you too scared to use one? Please let me know why. Have you heard frightening stories about a session? And if so, what happened there? It's also fascinating to me. So please get in touch and let me know your stories. Get in touch yourselves with any other paranormal stories that you've had. And if you have had a paranormal or unexplained experience, let us know. And don't forget, if you want a copy of The Exorcist that I read from for this uh, paranormal activity episode, then email uh, and let us know there as well. Now, let's take a moment for ourselves to just (sighs) breathe with our wonderful friend, Paul Wales. This week, we're looking at the Ganji story. I remember one day back in 2015, I was in Haridwar, India with a group on retreat. We were on the banks of the Ganges, India's sacred river. Our group wanted to take a dip in these holy waters. Now, this is a very powerful river. There are chains along the bank to hold onto if you get swept away. Unfortunately, one of our group thought he was bathing at Brighton on the beach, laying on his back, just floating, relaxing in the sun. He was unaware that he was slowly drifting into the fast waters, and then he was gone, swept away downstream. I waded out as far as I could to look downstream, but I could not see him. There was no sign at all. I grabbed the chain so I could push myself further out into the strong current and there he was trying to pull himself along the chains. Now any normal any normal person would have floated downstream and got out of the Ganges at the nearest spot he could. I looked at him, he was white as a sheet, exhausted. I reached out and managed to grab him, thinking I could pull him back into the calmer waters. I could not move him. I tried harder and harder and he would not move. So I went back to my breath. 
relaxed on each breath. And I could feel my entire body relaxing. And here, when I softly inhaled, I could inch him along. On each in-breath, I moved him an inch at a time until he was back into the calmer waters. And then I took him to the shore, sat him down and said to him, Don't you dare move. Just find your breath. Stay here. Luckily, a friend came over and sat with him until he gathered enough strength and then helped him out of the river. Now, this amazed me. In the water, the harder I pulled against the current, the harder it was to move my friend. So I waded back into the Ganges until I was starting to feel the full power of the river. I tried to walk against the flow. This was impossible. My feet were firmly on the bottom of the river, my body pushing against the flow of the water. So I changed my breath, breathing into every cell of my body as softly as I could, and continued this until I had expanded it out into the Ganges, each breath becoming more relaxed until there was no resistance. It was as if I had reached a place within me that attuned to the sacredness of this great river, and this allowed me to pass through her. Now I could easily walk, walk against the immense flow of the Ganges. So in life, remember, whenever you feel resistance or conflict, soften the breath and allow this to move you through a situation or drama. Conflict and drama is not the way. There is peace in everything, and that includes you. Remember, Paul says, just breathe. Well, thank you for listening to Paranormal Activity with Yvette Fielding and a huge thanks to all our lovely listeners for sharing their visitation stories with us. You can get in touch and share our own stories at this address. It's contact at paranormalpod.co.uk or you can leave a voice note on WhatsApp and the number is 0759992737 and our handle on Instagram is at paranormalactivitypod. Stay up to date with the newest episodes by giving us a follow and we will be back again same time next week but if you can't wait until then visit www.paranormalpod.co.uk where you can find options to get episodes a day early have a great week don't get too spooked and remember things aren't always as they seem